morn or evening, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on to everybody. What I'm about to say could mean the world's disaster. Could change your joy and laughter to heart and soul. Thank you for this opportunity to be with you today. And in honor of Billy Porter, I'm going to draw and the category is pride is my legacy. Pride is my legacy. 
You know, as I was preparing for the talk today, one of the things that I use as a study guide is the 365, 365 Science of Mind. And as I was dutifully, dutifully going to June 6th, because after all, today is June 6th, I would start to read the lesson, and then I would get distracted, and oh, I need a pen. And I would come back to the book, and the book was on June 2nd. And I thought, well, this is June 6th, so I would turn the page, and I would go back to that page, and I'd start to read. I'd start to read about my reality, which was the lesson of the day. And then I needed a paper clip, so I would reach for it, and I'm going to come back, and it was back to June 2nd. And so finally, at one more time, I thought, I'm going to use that paper clip to hold the page so that I know and I stay on June 6th because that is my reality. And then I heard spirits say, your divine inheritance is your reality. So there's this opportunity, and I want to encourage you right now that as you go through your daily study, as you put things together, don't be afraid to interpret it to be in your own truth. We are celebrating pride, and we are celebrating that pride is the antidote to shame. We are celebrating that pride is the antidote to fear. So if we are going to use that as our guiding sentence to get us through today, we have this opportunity to take a look at what it is that we know in this faith, this philosophy that we call science of mind. As you are aware, I have been studying this philosophy for nearly 40 years now. And what I am aware of is it has gotten me through the dark night of my soul. It has gotten me through challenging times. It has been the guiding principle that I have lived my life. So I know with certainty that it is up to me to preach, teach, and write about the philosophy of science of mind. And one of the other things that I know is that, as we said earlier, we know here at Heart and Soul and in other places that Reverend Andriat has taught us that if we keep our attention on our intention, all will be good. Well, what I also know and what I am teaching now that if we accept our divine inheritance, warmest greetings, Heart and Soul, our divine inheritance. Family. Plus our intention equals our legacy. And our legacy is pride. So we have this opportunity to look at this month of pride and what pride means. You know, we have many naysayers out there in the world that says, you know, it's about advocacy. It's not about pride. And that what do we really have to be prideful for because we're still working some stuff out. Well, that's what we do. We are humans practicing, using the tools that we have, using what we know, and putting them all together to learn how to get from where we are to where we want to be. And we know from the beginning 
that this idea of if you want to change your life, you must first change your mind. We are here to be the demonstration to other people of how to do that. Now, Beinard Ruskin tells us, and if you don't know him, I know you all know him here. He was truly the linchpin, the catalyst for the march on Washington. And as an openly gay man in the 60s, he refused to compromise his life, just as a trailer said for summer school, because in his soul, he knew the truth. He knew how to play it. He knew how to organize people. He knew how to peacefully bring people together so that their voice would be heard. But he was the spirit behind that. He was the advocate. He was the catalyst for change. And so it is with pride that we lift him up during this Pride Month. But we also know what we have to learn from those times, from that peaceful resistance, is what gets us through. It is the lesson for the gay community, for the transgender community, and for every community to learn how to stand up and not be willing to be shunned, to not be marginalized, to not be set aside. So, of course, even in our own community, we have that work to do as well. You know, I love how life unfolds sometimes. Because when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go away to a state championship in extemporaneous speaking. Now, I could pull a ticket from a jar and talk about it and say something and felt pretty good about it, and that's why I did well in speech class. It's also kind of letting me know a little bit at an early age what my divine inheritance might be. But at this state convention... I get to the state convention, and I walk in with my smile on. I walk in just as I am today. And then suddenly I notice other, other contestants coming in with a four-drawer filing cabinet on a dolly, with Encyclopedia Britannica's, with magazines and newspapers and periodicals, knowing that when they draw their topic to speak about, they have the research right at the hand to go to it. So I immediately thought, this is not going to go well. I am woefully unprepared. And so I prayed, God, show me what is mine to do. Give me the words to say. Make it a safe experience. So, I drew my topic, and the topic was, why should Dr. Martin Luther King Day be a federal holiday? And I said, because it's all about legacy. It's all about peace. And so I gave my 10-minute talk, and I just opened up, and I let spirit move through me to know what to say, know what to do. I placed fourth with no preparation, no documents, just allowing spirit. 
But I knew in that moment there would never be a time where if I turned it over to God that I would not be a vessel for what needed to be said or needed to be done. Now, here's what I also know. Beinard Ruskin tells us that if we all don't stand up against prejudice, it will expand and it will turn back on us. So if I take that understanding and I know, like when I first moved to California and I moved to the city of San Francisco when I was 24 years of age, I wanted to go out. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to expand the knowingness of what I had experienced in Indiana where I grew up. And I had friends of every ethnicity. And I realized that if I wanted to go out with my friends to the Badlands or to the Elephant Walk in the Castro District of San Francisco, I would come up to the door and they would say, oh, step right in, come right over here. And I would have to turn and wait on my Asian friends or my Latino friends or my black friends because they each had to have three pieces of identification, be wearing the right shoes, and have the right clothes on to get inside the bar. And they were often told by the bouncer or the door person, you know, if they were black, they were told, you know, you would probably be more comfortable across the street at the pendulum. If they were Asian, they were told, you would probably be more comfortable up on Polk Street at Busby's or at the In Touch. If they were Latino, they were told that they would probably be more comfortable in the mission at El Rio. But here's what I know. It wasn't about their comfort at all. It was about the comfort of the white person at the door that wanted to have an Abercrombie and Fitch look to the crowd that was in that room. And I said, no, not on my watch. Now, I didn't know why, but it just didn't make sense. My soul knew to take it to another place. So I went to Busby's. I went to InTouch. I went to El Rio. I went to the panel. I went, and I was welcomed. Nobody told me that I would be more comfortable somewhere else. And so I thought, okay, the universe is showing me here what is my divine inheritance, and it is to point out when I experience prejudice. In Indiana, I grew up in a very progressive Christian church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. They were the church that married the lovings. That was great risk. That was great risk in that day. They were the first denomination to ordain women as pastors. They became open and affirming in 1977. So that's the stock of where I came from. That was the way that I was raised up by my mother. But even in every denomination, there is separation. 
And so when I went away to college, to Indiana State University, believe it or not, Brandis is trembling when I say this, I was a part of the choir. I pantomimed really well. But as a part of that choir, we would tour and represent the Disciples of Christ Christian Church's on-campus ministry to other churches throughout Illinois and Indiana. And I was sitting there on the stage one night when the minister got up to speak, and this was right in the depth of the Anita Bryant era of life, and said, there will never be a homosexual in my choir. And I went, hmm, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, I can't be here. I can't be here. So the next Sunday, wherever they performed, there were at least five of us that weren't there because we knew that we were not welcome. And so my message today is I know that somewhere out there in YouTube land, Facebook land, or some community, there is someone struggling to reconcile the church that they were brought up in with what they are being taught to who they are as a human being. So I'm here to say there are no accidents in God. You are created in the divine image of that God. Never forget. That is your truth. And so when someone tries to tell you that it's different, think of it as that same teaching that we have in the science of mind where we talk about the four kingdoms. That's in that lowest denominator where life happens to you, where you were in that victim stage of life where you're being taught that you're, you must be obedient to God. You must be fearful of God. You must be worried about getting into heaven. Hell is a real thing. But if you're like some of us and it doesn't resonate with your soul, know that you can let that go. Know that you can move and take dominion over your spiritual journey. You can take dominion over your life and figure out what it is that works for you. You can put the pieces together because God is there. You and God are one. And if you're open to it, God will show you the path to take for your spiritual journey to make sense. And then once you move from that plateau where you take communion, you take dominion of your life, you can move into the category where life happens through you. And when you get to that plateau where life happens through you, oh, magic happens because suddenly you become the demonstration of how to get from where you are to where you want to be, and you can tell others. You're not going to tell them your story of victimhood. You're going to tell them your story of getting over because it is the story of getting over that empowers people to get over in their own life. And then once you've mastered that plateau, then you move into the plateau of life happens as me. And when you're in, when you're in that plateau, you know that you accept fully your divine inheritance and you accept that your intention is your guiding principle because your intention brings your values together, your purpose together, your vision together. 
And when you combine your divine inheritance with your intention, your legacy will manifest. Your legacy will be all that you came here to be. But sometimes, sometimes we have to move through the darkness to get to the light. But if we are in this place, we know the light is there because God is the light. As a little kid in church, we sang it, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So I knew it was there. I just had to find the light. You know, my brother, a few years ago, wrote a story. I'm the playwright, but he also writes. And he wrote a short story about the light at the top of the stairs. He did it as a tribute to our mom. You see, my brother had this experience. He's 12 years older than I am. And so he was an only child for 12 years. And for much of his 12-year experience, it was the three of them, my dad, my mom, and him, and they lived in a brand-new, beautiful house. They had things going well. And then things didn't go so well. My dad stopped coming home, started working in another town, and they had to sell the house. So they had to move into this big, old, rickety, 11-room house that my grandparents owned. And in fact, that wasn't really even enough to get it by. They had to divide that old, rickety house into a duplex. So they had to put a wall where a wall didn't naturally go. They had to take this big stairway, this big open case stairway, and divide it in half so that on our side of the duplex, it was a very tall, steep, and narrow stairway. This was a whole new world for my brother. It frightened him because at that time, I wasn't here yet. He was only 10 or 11, and he would go to that stairway every night and it had the first landing, which was about five steps. And it would turn into be another ten steps. And then the landing would turn yet again for the final four steps. And for a little kid, that was a long way to go. But as long as the stairway light was on, he was okay. And then one night, the light wasn't on. And he turned to our mother and said, I don't want to go. Take me. And she said, you must be willing to go through the darkness knowing that the light is at the top of the steps. You must believe that the light is there no matter how dark the path may be. And so step by step by step, he went up those steps until finally he got to that top landing and he could see the light in his room, the safety of his room. And he used that metaphor for his whole life of knowing, I must have faith that there is light on the other side of the darkness, for that is God's promise. That was the lesson our mother taught him. Now, as you can see in the picture, he became my father when he was that age. He wanted me to, he wanted to protect me from everything he feared. That stairway being one of them. 
And so every night when it was time for me to go to bed and to climb that stairs, he would warm my blanket on the register, wrap me in that blanket, and carry me up to my crib. Because he didn't want me to have to cope with the darkness and to be fearful. Now, we've often used that metaphor in our life, throughout our life. Again, when I moved to San Francisco and I had to face the AIDS pandemic, I found myself in another dark hallway. I had the experience in our community that we were moving through a darkness that we never anticipated. We moved through this pandemic not knowing really how to protect ourselves or knowing what it was to mean, knowing what was ours to do with it. But we knew in our soul what to do. The light that is this little light of mine lives within our soul and it ignites us to take the path that we must take. I became a minister because there were no ministers that would bury my friends that were dying. There was no mortuary that would take them. And it was out of that anger, it was like, oh, in the most spiritual way, hell no. Not on my watch. I will not listen to those words that will keep me in that lowest plateau where life happens to me. I will take dominion over this life and do the best that I can possibly do, no matter what. And so, I founded a ministry that led to a program at the VA Medical Center that helped people choose to live again rather than accept a death diagnosis. I used that voice to guide me to be one of the founding principals in a nonprofit that paid for people as they transversed that AIDS epidemic so that they would not have to pay the rent, so that they would not have to worry about clothing, so that they could bring their parents out here if they needed to. But it was all divinely guided because I was enriched in this teaching. So, of course, a year ago or 14 months ago, another pandemic comes into our life. I've done pandemic. I know what to do. Listen to spirit. Let spirit guide us. Let spirit tell us what is ours to do. And then I realized the antidote to the fear, to the darkness, to moving up those steps is connection with like-minded people. I realized that I had been embraced for the last decade by people who were teaching me how to cope with prejudice. They were teaching me how to learn about isolation and marginalization. So when I started to get emails from people saying that they were suicidal, I've already survived one pandemic. I can't go through another one. I could say, yes, you can. 
Find your spirit. Find your light, and you will know what is yours to do right here, right now. We have this opportunity. As Reverend Andriette says, let's not waste a good pandemic because we know that we are enough to be the demonstration of how to get from where we are to where we want to be. We don't have to worry about it. The answers will be there just as the light will be there at the top of the stairs. We have the faith. We know that we will know what needs to be done. And here, here's, the, here's the real antidote for this. We know that pride is born out of love. And not just any love. Pride is born out of self-love. Self-love. Back what moves you from that place of being the victim to that place of taking dominion over your life is when you proclaim that you love yourself enough that you will not take anything from anyone that does not embrace your values, your philosophy, your purpose, and your mission. Love yourself. If you love yourself first, then you will not have to put up with any kind of hokey-doke relationship just to get some love. If you love yourself, you don't have to surround yourself with a tribe that really isn't true to who you are just to get along. The message for today the message that this community is here to teach the world is to love yourself. Be proud of yourself. Now, I don't think I've adequately given you the message. So I'm going to turn back to my beloved Billy Porter to show you the importance of loving yourself. Billy? It's time to love yourself. Come on, hit that track. Always remember who you are. This is my new single, y'all. Hey, if you want to be the girl in the picture, well, you got to meet a hello.
revolution. Be a part of this revolution. it is in an attitude of gratitude. Can I just say for life, an attitude of gratitude and a consciousness of thanksgiving. That's the foundation on which I stand this morning, even as I recognize the divine. The I am, the living one, the strong one, the whole perfect and complete nature of the divine. In everything. Someone taught me long ago, I don't even know where I first heard it, that there's not a spot where God is not. And thinking about what that means, it means God is everywhere, always present. The living one is everywhere, always present. In everyone, in every situation, and every circumstance. Oh, Mother, Father, God. Just in this moment of realization, not a spot where God is not everywhere, always present, has to include me. Woo-hoo has to include me when I'm thinking in foggy ways, when I'm, when I'm resistant, when I'm fearful, when I'm doubtful, when I'm ashamed, when I feel guilty. Not a spot where God is not. Everywhere, always present. My work and the work for all of us is to, to come into divine awareness. of our permanent and all-abiding 
connection in God. I am as thou art. Thou art in and as me. That just as I am right now, that I am a perfect expression of the divine. Right here in all of my human frailties, in all of my beingness, I am yet still, I declare right now, knowing and knowing that I know a divine expression, whole, perfect, and complete. Mother, Father, God, remind me of this later when I doubt. <laughs> remind me of this later when something distracts me from this truth. But right now I know that I know that I know. And knowing this, I know it's all done. I know that whatever I came prepared to ask for is already done. That thou answer before I can even ask. That there's a divine knowing that I have not even yet realized that all of my needs are met. And that this is true about all of us. So right now, I simply speak this word from a vantage point of knowing that there is not a spot where God is not. That includes on my tongue, the back of my throat, the vocal cords, in my heart, in my heart of hearts, in my very spirit, that it's up to me to realize the presence, the power, the divine unfolding of all good. Oh, I give thanks. I give thanks for realizing right now that I've never been able to stop God. That for all of my machinations, all of my carrying on, all of my shenanigans, that it still has not stopped the divine from breathing me, from living me, and that this is true of all of us. That there is no guilt, no shame that can keep the divine at bay. Oh, I give thanks. I give thanks for the divine order in the universe. I give thanks for the presence and power of God, the divine right here and now, the living one, the strong one, imbuing absolutely all humanity. Thanks for this divine realization. It is an absolute perfect gratitude that I release this word into the perfect activity of law that I know that it's already done. That I know that the law that is love, God is love. And that it's absolutely impossible for this word to return void. I know that it absolutely must produce in like kind. And so I just let it be. Getting myself out of the way. As Emerson says, my bloated nothingness. That the divine can have its way. I let it be. I let it be. And I seal this for all eternity by simply saying, Ashe, Amen. And so it is.